and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit more about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team of coaches and facilitators are on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the skills that we actually teach is around values. So we teach something called personal framework. And in the personal framework that we work with our clients on, we talk about values, mission, philosophy, and vision. And today's guest is actually going to dive deeper and drill down on values. So I get to learn alongside you today and hopefully you'll find that helpful. Additionally, one of the other strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out last October. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase. And heck, if you even like listening to podcasts, you probably will enjoy listening to the audiobook. I narrated the entire thing. It was a painful experience, but I did it and got through it. And you can listen to that via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased. And I've been overwhelmed by the response that the book is getting on social media or random texts that I get or emails. Really, really grateful that people are getting a lot out of the book. Additionally, I run an accelerator program, which involves one-on-one coaching from me, and it's designed for executives who are interested in growing, learning, and figuring out how they can lead and perform better. Our current accelerator is sold out, but I'll be launching another one in January, and if you're interested in that, feel free to email me. My email is brian at strongskills.co. Once again, that's brian at strongskills.co. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand our reach. You wouldn't believe how many people find us via iTunes. So thanks to all of you who have already done so. Let's continue to share these intentional performers 
with the world. Now to today's guest. Brant Mansoir is a best-selling author. He's a performance coach. He's named one of the country's top 10 speakers in motivation, and he's the CEO and founder of Bookstar PR. And while Brant has spoken to amazing organizations like ESPN, Hilton, SunTrust, Microsoft, you get the drill. What's going to make this conversation special is the human side of Brant. So he's certainly going to share his expertise around values, which is what he wrote his book called Black Sheep on, but he's going to get really personal in this conversation. And I'm so grateful that he did because it's easy for many of us to look at people like Brant and think they have everything figured out. We see them on stages, whether it's with a guitar in his hand or with a microphone. And we think that those people have it or they have it all. And Brant's going to share a lot of his vulnerable challenges um, in his life, something that he's actually going through right now as we record this conversation. And I just hope you stay with us because this conversation was incredibly human, incredibly thought-provoking. I think we all need to think about how we can intentionally lean into vulnerability and intentionally show up and live our values every single day that we are here. And there are going to be days where we don't. And Brant's going to share some of the moments that he didn't live his values and what that led him to and why he's doing the work that he's currently doing. So without further ado, I'm excited to present to you Brant Mensoir. Brant, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, we had a, a great conversation when we first connected. And thanks to Tamson Webster for connecting the two of us. Uh, where I figured we'd start is you've got a guitar over your right shoulder. I know when we chatted before, you had many guitars over your shoulders. Yes. But when did you first pick up a guitar and what was that like for you? Well, it was junior high school. I took guitar lessons for about six months and then uh, got tired of practicing <laughs> and sore fingertips. And so I uh, gave it up and didn't pick it back up again until probably uh, junior year of high school. And then um, again, put it down and didn't pick it back up until probably junior year of college. And I joined a, a local bar band there called Madhouse Brew. And, um, and then sort of put it away for many, many years and didn't, didn't actually pick it back up again until I was 30 and, uh, quit my job, uh, recorded a record, toured around the country, uh, signed a record deal, toured around the world, signed another record deal, toured around the world again, and then, uh, decided I was getting too old for this. <laughs> so I want to go back to junior year in high school what allowed you to pick the guitar back up and, and why did you decide to, to start playing again? Well, I think it's the same reason that every guy picks up the guitar and that's girls. <laughs> you know? Well, I picked, I picked up a guitar two years ago for the first time and I'm All married right. and I'm happily married and I'm, yeah. and I'm balding. And um, I think uh, th there wasn't a lot of interest. I, I picked it up because I wanted to try something new and challenge myself. And, awesome. and I, I really struggled with it. Mm. Really struggled. I took some lessons. Yeah. I found it really difficult at, to, to learn, but so junior year, you're thinking, Oh, I want to be a rock star. I'm going to pick up the guitar again. Or what are you thinking back then? You know, it was honestly uh, a creative outlet for me. So um, creativity is one of my, it's one of my core values. And so uh, it's, it's one of those things that over the course of my life, I can look back and, and look at the things I chose to do as an expression of uh, 
um, feeding into into that value of creativity. You know, uh, part of why I think you guys are frustrated is one of the things I've learned sort of with 20 years in the music business is the way that we teach how to play guitar is completely back asswards. It is not the way that you should learn how to play guitar. You should learn how to play guitar in an open tuning. Um, and then when you play guitar in an open tuning, which simply means the strings are tuned to different notes than traditional or standard tuning. Um, so when you strum the guitar, it actually plays a chord without you touching any of the strings. It is a chord by itself. So there's open D, open C, open E. Um, and it's, if you've ever watched anybody play slide guitar, they're usually playing in a, in an open tuning because it works better with the slide, but when you play in an open tuning, I can teach you two finger positions to play every major and minor chord that exists. And you don't have to learn the six or 12 different chord shapes to play those notes. I can just teach you two different finger positions. And then it, all that matters is where you are on the neck. So if you wanted to play a G, it's the same position as an A, as a B, as a C, as a D. It's the same finger position for every single chord. What changes is where you are on the neck of the guitar. I think about a sport like golf and how difficult golf is for people when, when they are starting out, how difficult it is for people when they're experts. Mm -hmm. um, and, and golf, they don't do a great job of setting it up for success early. Um, the golf course is massive. Uh, it, it's very hard for kids to play golf on a golf course. And as you're talking about the guitar, I'm wondering about just learning new things and how can we make it easy enough so that people will want to continue? Because if it's too difficult, yeah, we, we run away. Um, I'm curious for you in other walks of your life, have you found that your creative voice or your creative desires have been stunted by something that was maybe too difficult or, um, did you ever create anything that you found took a lot, a lot of work to just get started, not master, but just get sure. started. Yeah, absolutely. Consistently over the course of my life. I, I think that there's a couple of things that really help, right? So, you've got to, first of all, understand your motivation, right? And so the thing that I learned much later in life is that there's really only four reasons why humans do anything. And when you, when you learn what those four reasons are, you learned what your preferred motivator is. And when you know what your preferred motivator is, you can uh, up your commitment level to the things that you do if you are motivated and using that motivation that you know and, and prefer as opposed to one of the others. Um, so that's, that's number one. Number two is when it comes to things like playing the guitar, um, teaching me how to play Mary Had a Little Lamb is not going to keep me engaged. Keeping, you know, teaching me how to play Guns N' Roses will keep me playing the guitar, right? And so you've got to sort of use those things that you're really working towards as opposed to just learning a technique or some sort of a, a, a method of learning that isn't filled with or pointing to the end goal of what you're trying to do. For sure. And we're definitely going to talk about values and those four reasons for doing mm -hmm. things. Um, but you mentioned at 30 years old, you decide, hey, I'm quitting my job. What was your job and what led to you pursuing this dream of becoming a rock star? I spent... Um, 
half a decade in the accounts receivables management world, which is a really fancy term for collections. And so I did uh, commercial collections, business to business collections. I handled the client side for the largest commercial collection agency in the world and um, sort of came in to that industry. Uh, you know, you start off in what they call the pit, which is sort of like uh, stockbrokers in that way. You, you get a cubicle and you start to earn your way into an office. And um, within a year, I'd gotten promoted uh, to be the national sales manager and work my way up to uh, vice president of business development for the organization. And uh, during that time, I started to feel this real call at that point in my life into music ministry and just didn't have an outlet really as to how that was going to happen. And so, you know, I did something really foolish, which was I, I made a deal with God. And, and when you do that, you never quite know how God's going to answer that. And so um, I said, look, if you find a way to pay for all this fancy stuff that I have, I will go do this for you. You know, how kind of me to, to be willing to go out and play music for, for him. And um, within a couple of months, we were purchased, uh, uh, acquired by another company. Um, I lost my job. Uh, I couldn't find work anywhere because I was, you know, 26, seven years old, making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. And there's not a lot of opportunities <laughs> that look like that at 26 or seven years old. And um, I, I, uh, I just said, okay, then I guess I got to do this. And so started to just play the guitar again started playing coffee shops, played churches, played anywhere I could find that would let me play. And, um, you know, within a year I was doing about 75 or 80 gigs a year, uh, had some success on the radio with a, with a particular, uh, song on that first record. And, um, that led to my first major record deal in 2007 with, uh, Fort Pastor, which was the band that I was the front man for. And faith, when did faith come into your life? So faith, you know, I grew up, I was baptized Catholic, um, but didn't really go to church because it, it, it interfered with sports. And I was a, an athlete, a competitive athlete growing up, um, was sort of bred to play baseball my whole life and came out of high school as a four sport um, athlete, you know, all state in, in uh, three of the four sports and just uh, play, was planning on playing professional baseball, uh, went to Florida Southern, uh, to play ball for them. And I was born and raised in New Hampshire. So it's a little, little different up Northeast. Um, but, uh, you know, I ended up coming down to play baseball. I got hurt and, uh, couldn't play anymore. And so I separated my shoulder, tore all, tore all the muscles between my AC joint and my middle of my chest. And so, um, I found faith <laughs> after uh, I got hurt and had this revelation that, well, God must have something more for me. It's why he's not letting me do the only thing I've ever wanted to do in my life and um, took an internship uh, my junior year of college with the church and had the most horrendous experience of my life. And ran away from the church until I was 30 years old. And uh, that's the music, music sort of brought me back. You said you were bred to play baseball. You didn't say you were necessarily bred 
to be in the church who was breeding you to play baseball and and what do you what do you mean by that that's an interesting word to to choose to talk about yeah. a relationship with baseball i come from a family um who has an incredibly strong love affair with baseball uh, my father is a, an incredibly well-known pitching coach in new england who has coached two cy young award winners and several world series champs and um in my uncle uh, had a stellar baseball career uh, through college and got hurt. So he couldn't play uh, in, in the pros, but um, my whole life was baseball was, I mean, I played a lot of sports, but baseball was my sport. It was what I was known for. I still hold a lot of uh, records for pitching um, in the, you know, Babe Ruth and, and June, yeah, what do you call it? little league and, and all those things now it's Cal Ripken, but it's, you know, I spent many years um, sort of dominating on, on the baseball field and got hurt when I was 14 and I was playing soccer for my high school and separated my shoulder and that was it. And I rehabbed for a year, uh, came back to play a year later and uh, still had scholarship offers to play in, in college. But when I came down to Florida, you know, we, we played an entire season's worth of games in a month down here. Um, and so my, my arm just wasn't capable of healing to the point that, um, I'd be able to play that, that much. So I, I had to make a decision. I was either potentially risk losing mobility of the arm or find something else to do. Um, and believe it or not, uh, it was a tough decision. <laughs> it's a tough decision when it's all you've ever wanted your whole life. I mean, I didn't want to be an architect. I was going to school to do whatever, but basically I was going to school to play baseball. I mean, that was why I chose Florida Southern. They were at the time, you know, seven time national champions. They've had more people go to the pros than pretty much any other school in the country. Um, it's a farm. And, and so that's where I wanted to be because that's where all the best guys were you know the way they recruit there was they recruited the top three players at every position and two players go home and that sort of uh, uh was the culture at that time that I was playing at and so um it was tough for me to, to walk away uh from something that I feel like was literally what I was placed on the planet to do at that point in my life did your dad put pressure on you when it came to baseball never never um just encouraged just encouraged me taught me you know, he was my coach from the time I, I could walk till uh, I graduated high school. He was my coach. And so um, I don't know. I, you know, I, I grew up in, an, in the era that not everybody got a trophy. <laughs> um, I hate that. I hate the era we are in where everybody gets a trophy. I think it's one of the most detrimental things that you can do to, to a kid is give him a trophy for not winning. Um, they have to learn the, the value of winning. They have to learn the value, more importantly, of losing. And um, if they've experienced loss, they become a snotty, uh, uh, you know, young person in the workforce who thinks they deserve everything and has no concept of what earning anything actually means. And so, uh, you know, I just grew up in that culture of it wasn't, it wasn't that I had to win. It was that for myself, um, it, there was no other option. And, and I just didn't want to face anything other than that. So, so it, whether I won or lost, it would, it would affect me, but I always entered into every game as expecting to win and, and the desire to do whatever was necessary in order to win. And I think that we've lost a lot of that 
mentality over the last decade or two. What were you like academically? Um, I was probably so interesting enough in, in high school, I was, you know, a B, B plus student somewhere in that ballpark. And mostly because I just didn't care. I, you know, I, I, it wasn't that I, I couldn't do the work. Um, what I cared about was, was baseball <laughs> uh, and sports in general uh, and, and girls and dating and hanging out with my friends and all of those sorts of things took precedence. And it wasn't until I got hurt and stopped playing in college that all of a sudden I went from, you know, a B, B plus student to, you know, making uh, the president's list and all of those sorts of things where I actually decided to apply myself, but I was much, much older before I actually switched gears in that way. It's so interesting because we're hearing you talk four sport athlete, pick up a guitar, good with the guitar. sounds like socially good, you know, academically still did fine, even though maybe didn't really apply yourself. What were you struggling with when you were younger? Like what were some things that you found challenging or maybe that didn't come easy to you in, in high school or in college? Well, I, I mean, looking back now, I would say that, uh, you know, I struggled with identity a lot because my identity was wrapped up in accomplishments. Um, and, and so, you know, I was, I was the, the net, you know, where I grew up, Mike Flanagan, um, who is a Cy Young Award winner in 1979 for the Baltimore Orioles, um, was a dear friend of, of my family's, uh, my dad was his coach in high school. And, um, you know, he sort of shepherded me into what professional baseball culture was like. And um, when I got hurt, he was right there to, to help as well. But, you know, I grew up being the next Mike Flanagan. It wasn't even me. It was, I was the next him. <laughs> and so, you know, your identity gets wrapped up into accomplishments and, and results in what you're doing. Um, that when all of that gets stripped away from you, what's left. And, and that was tough for me. It was tough for me to figure out who I was, what I wanted to do, because everything was always wrapped up in, in sports for me. And so when that went away, I turned to music um, you know, I turned to sales, I turned to a million different things. When I first gra graduated college, I must have done 20 different things in my first two years of, of out of school, because I just didn't know what I wanted to do, because I had only planned on playing baseball my whole life. So I studied to be a gemologist for a year, I worked for an ad agency, I sold insurance, I sold uh, in home uh, uh, you know, uh, water treatment systems. I sold solar hot water heaters. I, I did everything because I had no idea what I wanted to do. And um, it took me years and years and years. And I honestly, even 20 years in the music business, it's taken me to realize that I'm finally doing now what I feel like I was actually placed on this planet to do. Um, and I wouldn't go back. I wouldn't go back. If you told me today, we're going to give you another record deal. We're going to break through. You're going to be a household name. I wouldn't do it because I, what I'm doing now is so much more impactful uh, and, and so much more enjoyable uh, that uh, I, I, you know, I'm really sort of coming into, into my own now at 50 years old, <laughs> um, having wasted a good 30 years of my life. Well, wasted. Why, why would you say wasted? Because if I would have done the work that I know matters now, back when I was 20, holy shit, 
I, I, I would be a billionaire by now. I would have accomplished so much more um, knowing what my non-negotiables were at 23 or four years old, as opposed to 47 before I finally decide to, to actually define those things in my life. Um, yeah. So, so in many cases, I, I do look at it as, as wasted time. But Brant, you, you said before that, that your, accompli- your accomplishments aren't who you are. And so Correct. it's so interesting because you said, I would have accomplished so much. I would have been a billionaire. Yeah. And so there's still a part of you that I hear that wants accomplishments. Even mm-hmm. n- n- I hate the idea of everybody giving a trophy, like you should feel winning, you should feel losing. And so I, it's so interesting as I hear you talk because I hear about this creative guy who plays music and wrote a book and has podcast and you come off as very creative, but then I think of a pitcher in baseball as somebody who it's pretty much discipline. It's getting your reps in hitting the target um, hit focus. Um, and so there, there's like this polarity that I'm hearing with you where it's like, you do value accomplishment, but you don't want accomplishment to be who you are or your identity or your top value. And then you've got this creative side. You're picking up a guitar as a junior in high school, but you're also a four sport athlete. And so the complexity or the polarity of you is, is kind of fascinating to me. Can you pull on that thread a little bit for me? So, you know, for me, learning at 47, 48 years old, that as you know, a self-professed control freak of the highest level, like Brian, if you invited me to dinner, I'd say yes. And I would drive your car, right? That is, that is the level of control that I need in my life. Um, the hardest pill for me to swallow when I was doing the research for the book is coming to the understanding that we don't control outcomes. It's impossible to control an outcome. The only thing you can control is the deliberate intention that goes into making a decision. But once the decision is made, you're not a wizard. You cannot wave a wand and control the outcome. And, and that, that is what has sort of changed my entire approach, right? Because now it's not that I, um, yes, I want to accomplish. Yes, I want those things, but I am not putting whether I feel good or bad about it on an outcome. I am putting whether I feel good or bad about it on whether I honored the things that matter most to me. And if I did that, then I made a good decision and then I did the best that I could possibly do. And no matter what the outcome turns out to be, it doesn't really matter to me because I did what I said I was going to do, which is honor these things that matter most. And so my entire life goes into doing that now um, and is far less on the end result as to what I desire from from, uh, uh, an accomplishment of some kind. I like that you brought that up. I was listening to a podcast yesterday and the person said, I can control the outcome. And I was thinking to myself, I go, ah, if that were the case and everybody would just be quote unquote successful, um, there's a lot that goes into it, including luck, including health, including um, who your teammates are or who the opponent is, or it, you could put it into a sports context or a music context or a business context. And I really think the idea that we control our outcome, you and I both publish books. We don't control how many people buy the book. Um, I, I know I certainly don't. Um, but that word waste, I, I think it's an interesting word to use because 
the way I see it from my lens and where I'm sitting is you needed those 20 years in order to be where you are today and exploring what you're exploring today. So that's a word that just caught my attention as soon as yeah. you got it. Um, it's interesting. It's, well, I, I listen, when you, did you ever, did you watch uh, the, the Jordan documentary? Yeah. The last dance. Okay. So in my lifetime, there's only been a couple of athletes that I think um, they weren't just phenomenal athletes. They were world-class intimidators um, and not intimidating in a point my finger in your face kind of a way. And I'm going to purposefully intimidate you. They were intimidating because of the intensity of which they played the game and their expectation to win. That's Jordan. That's Tiger Woods, that's Kobe, and that's about it. <laughs> um, the level is, is, you know, you're on the verge on that teetering on the edge of being just a complete asshole uh, because you care so much about things. And I fought that a lot of my life, right, of being on the edge of wanting to be the best, whether that was we were playing checkers or chess, or we were playing baseball, or we were selling insurance or we were, whatever we were doing, I wasn't doing it for the sake of doing it. I was doing it to be the best at it. And, and if I felt like I couldn't be the best at it, I didn't want to do it. Um, and even now with the, with what I'm doing, it's still, I still go into these to whatever endeavor I'm doing expecting to be the best at it. And if that's not a possibility, I don't even want to, I don't, I don't even want to begin. And so I, I do the research. I want to make sure that I know what I'm talking about. And then what I bring to the table now as a 50 year old uh, is unique contribution. And that's something that I didn't bring on purpose anyways, for uh, the vast majority of my life, I would bring things that occasionally would align with what I know now to be my purpose, but it was by accident or luck. It was never by design. And so now I bring everything by design and it is just a different way of living your life. What do you mean by unique contribution? Um, a uh, unique contribution to me is contributing specifically through your set of non-negotiable values. It's what separates you from everybody else on the planet. And so unique contribution has to be contribution that is filtered through what I believe are your five non-negotiable values. So it's like uh, authenticity or a genuineness to, to you. It's the, it's the very fabric of who you are. That's it. It's what you bring to the table. If I ask you for information or advice or whatever it is, if you are not filtering your answer through the things that matter most to you, I'm only getting a reflection of what matters to somebody else. And I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in what matters to you. And that's unique contribution. And so you play in this band for 20 years. What leads to you deciding that you want to go down this journey of learning about values and, and discovering it? And, and why not just continue to play music and travel? It seems like a pretty cool lifestyle to me. Uh, my son got cancer. And that was it, you know, so uh, pulled us off the road, um, rocked our world and spent 263 days in the hospital with him battling and um, figuring out uh, what life looks like with a, you know, with a child who, who had cancer and then was a, a survivor as well, but required, you know, some serious medical care. Um, and so 
it did it, it was just it just wasn't an option to be gone on tour and for as long as I was and so I had to I had to pivot and um, I just pivoted from one stage to to another right so so I took the really hard lessons I learned during that moment uh, with my with my oldest son and was able to sort of transfer those learnings to uh, the speaking stage where I started to speak at conferences and uh, company meetings and that sort of thing. And uh, that's sort of the trajectory that I've been on for the last eight years, nine years now. How old was your son when he got diagnosed? 14. Yeah. Yeah. It was 14. Um, had a, a rare blood cancer called myelodysplastic syndrome and uh, required a bone marrow transplant. And the transplant went fine, but he ended up developing a bunch of other issues with graft versus host disease and his body just not really responding well. And, um, you know, he battled for nine years and uh, we lost him to COVID in February. What, what was the first thing I go to is what was it like to first hear the news 14? And then, you know, what's it been like for you the last few months as well? Um, well, you never, you know, you're never prepared to hear something like that. Uh, you immediately expect the worst and, uh, unless you've spent some time on a pediatric oncology ward, you don't really understand the realities of, of what's happening around you. Um, but living in an, (laughs) on a pediatric oncology ward for the better part of a year, um, you see, the, uh, the atrocities and the unfairness and all, all of the things that life deals. And you become incredibly thankful for the journey um, that you have. And even though it sucks, you're, you're happy that you're fighting. And then you spend every moment of survival worrying that it's going to come back and being concerned that today's the day that it turns. Uh, and so we spent a good eight or nine years and in January of this year, he, uh, he, he was 23, um, and got COVID, uh, battled it, thought we had it licked, came home, uh, he spent a couple days in the hospital, came home a couple days later, went back in and just, that was it. it. It just went downhill fast. And so February 27th, we lost him. And um, every moment since February 27th has sucked. (laughs) Yeah. That's just the truth. When we talked uh, a few weeks ago, you you also mentioned that he designed the cover for your book. Yeah. And I think I first told, I told you that I first saw your work because you sent this beautiful box to these people that were supporters of yours and they would open up this beautiful box and in it was this book and I have the book back here Um, but the cover is rad and uh, creative and sleek and simple can can you talk about your son uh, 23 years like what did you learn from him along along your journey and, and what did he teach you man strength that you can't possibly fathom you know what he dealt with his body was riddled uh 
with disease and just, you know, to look at him with his shirt off, you would have thought he was a slave because of the lesions and the lashes through the back of his back that being on prednisone for eight years does to your body. And it just looks like you've been whipped, um, you know, more holes in him from central lines being placed and surgeries done that, uh, you know, he looked like he'd, he'd been a, a prisoner of war. And in many, in, in a lot of cases, I, I could argue that that is exactly what he was. It was just a different type, type of battle, but um, he always found a way to push through. And honestly, uh, the most shocking part of the whole thing was we just, he was Superman, man. He beat everything. I mean, he was the anomaly. He was the exception to every single rule that doctors knew. And, you know, the doctor that, that saved his life on many, many occasions um, after he passed, it was a day before I had heard from him. And he finally texted and he said, I'm so sorry. I just, I'm in shock. He's beat everything. And I just, he was a superhero to me. And I, and I just thought he was infallible. Like there was nothing that could take him down. And so, you know, that was, uh, when you face something like he did every day, when literally getting out of bed is more than you've ever probably dealt with in your life. Um, it helps with perspective on one end and on the other end for me uh, it's his strength and, and ability to deal and cope with, with getting the short end of the stick that was undeserved um, that, that keeps me going every day today when I don't feel like getting out of bed because I miss him and to sort of now know that it's my responsibility to carry on his legacy and to take those lessons that we learned together, walking through this together. And, um, you know, the stuff that I've done over the last couple of years at the end of the day was really just to make him proud of me. And I have to just continue that work no matter how much it hurts. It's interesting because you mentioned that your dad didn't put pressure on you in baseball. And yet I can hear some pressure that you now feel to live his legacy and, and, for your son. Um, I wouldn't, I don't know that I would say it's pressure. Mm. I think it's, it's desire, you know, um, it's my way of, of keeping him alive. And so it is, uh, I don't, I don't look at it as pressure. I look at it as uh, a, a blessing, an opportunity, a, a chance that I've been given to make sure that everyone knows his name. What's his name? Theo. Awesome. Heavy stuff. Um, when, when you say that it has sucked the last two months, you're also a creative um, and you're someone who likes to create things and build things. And you said you have a desire to let people know his name. What have you been doing creativity-wise over the last few months? Great question. Um, I was having a conversation. My, I have a really good friend, uh, Allison Levine. Allie is a uh, one of the only women who has ever climbed the seven highest mountains uh, on the planet. Uh, 
she's been to Everest twice. Uh, she led the first all-female climbing crew up Everest. Um, she has snowshoed across Antarctica. I mean, she, uh, she is a superhero. And she, we were talking last night at dinner, and she, uh, you know, she's like, "What? What has the last couple months been for you?" And and it has been a chapter in my life of the highest level of creativity I've ever experienced. And it is grief fueled creativity and channeled properly. Um, it resonates at a far different frequency than my normal creativity. And so I have had ideas and things that have happened in the last couple of months that are at a completely different level than I've ever played at. You know, I was just offered a television show. Uh, I have an app in development that, you know, the, the, the last sort of similar idea had an exit of $130 million. So like we're, we're talking about a different, a, a level that wasn't even fathomable to me um, for, for the majority of my life that over the last few months, you know, I work probably 14, 15 hour days, seven days a week. Uh, and it's just my coping mechanism. And, and the way that I've been, you know, I know, I, I know it's not sustainable. I know it's not healthy. I know all that shit, but right now it's just the only way I know how to cope. And so, uh, I've sort of filtered all of the creativity into, um, and through the, the grieving process. And it has just produced results, not just for me, but for friends and, and, and people that I've been helping with their businesses and consulting on the things that they're doing from a creative aspect. I've never experienced the level that I have last, the last few months. Um, so I guess it's the, it's the silver lining of, of dealing with the, the heaviness of, this, of the scenario is that the creativity has been out of this world. You mentioned blessings earlier. I'm curious, what's your relationship with faith today? And is it still the same that it was um, before this happened? And you can even go back 10 years, 20 yeah. years. What's your relationship with faith? It's a, it's a MMA fight. <laughs> it's a bloody mess. <laughs> because I mean, I, like, I'll just speak for myself real quick. Uh, like spirituality and I was, I was raised Jewish and um you know, in some ways I'm envious of people who have such clarity on their, on their faith. And I think we talked about control earlier. It's like, gosh, if I could just let go and just say, there's a God, and this is what happens when I die. <laughs> like, I, like it, it would be liberating. Um, but I, I know like, you know, m my best friend's son, you know, two years old diagnosed with cancer and I'm watching him go through stuff. And I'm just like, man, I, I've, I have a hard time seeing it, let alone it's not even my son. Yeah. Um, so I can, I can only imagine the, the test to the faith that one would go through in, in your position. So yeah, where, where are you? So here's, here's an interesting perspective, I think, is faith is a choice, right? Um, when I'm coaching clients, I tell them that you only need belief when you don't have proof. 
right? And so when we're working through things and they are trying to convince themselves to believe something, whether, whether, whether that's that they care about this or that they can lose 20 pounds or that they can, whatever it is that they're convincing themselves on, you only need belief in the absence of proof. Um, but when it comes to faith, <laughs> um, the definition of proof is, is pretty loose. And so while I've had a contentious relationship, I would say with religion and church specifically over the last you know, 20 years or so, um, you know, I pastored a church for six years before Theo got sick. Um, that was sort of going to be my exit strategy off the road was I was going to pastor a church and then he gets cancer and then God and I are in a fist fight and we are not happy with each other. And, um, you know, and then we lose him. And, uh, you know, the crazy thing is up until him passing away, I'm okay being in a fist fight with God. I'm okay being a bloody mess. He's a big God. He can handle that, right? And so he can handle me cussing at him. He can handle me, you know, screaming bloody murder that I don't agree or understand or any of those other sorts of things. But now, now he has me by the balls because if I truly want to see Theo again, I have to believe I, I, I don't, I don't know how to, I, I can't, it, it's such a weird feeling to feel like I'm being forced now. If I want to see my son again, then I have to believe this. And control, even the control brand, right? It, it's letting it go is. of control. It is, but it's, it's one, but up until this point, I've still had a choice. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and now I feel like the choice has been taken away. Um, and and there it, it's still a choice, but who doesn't want to see their son again? You know what I mean? It's just, it's one of those things that it rubs me so wrong to feel that way. Um, but I just, I have found it incredibly interesting that in the face of a tragedy like this, uh, I feel like God finally went, gotcha. And, and I have mixed feelings about that. Yeah. You mentioned creativity and you mentioned non-negotiable values. Um, you wrote a whole book on, on values. Um, what sparked that? You, you mentioned him getting sick, brings you off the road. I got to figure out, all right, there's this watershed moment that's happening. I got to be home. I can't be on the road. Yeah. Um, and you get into speaking and, but, but why values? Like, what is it about values that grabbed hold of you? And then would love for you to teach us like what you've learned in your research and what you've learned along the way, as far as it, as far as values are concerned. Well, finding yourself in the middle of a life and death situation and trying to figure out what you really care about is not exactly the best time to be having that conversation with yourself. Um, and when you are required to make decisions that have life-threatening consequences um, and you don't have your shit together, uh, it's, it is a incredibly scary moment and one that you feel completely out of control in. Um, and so in, in throughout sort of this journey and in these times where we were faced in, with life or death situations for Theo, um, you know, we, we got to this one moment where the doctors just said, he's, he's not going to make it through the night. So you, you have to go say your goodbyes. And I, you know, 
I walked into the room, I grabbed my wife's hand, I grabbed his younger brother, and we sat on the edge of his bed. And, you know, you try to find the words to say goodbye. And it's like, that conversation was the turning point for me. Because I stumbled and bumbled, because I had no idea what to say in that moment. Um, because I had a tornado of things that were really important to me swirling around me. And I didn't have any of the non-negotiables next to me that I needed to draw from in that moment. And so, you know, he survived that, that night and ends up with this miraculous recovery. And, you know, he comes home several months later from the hospital and, you know, I go to bed every night with one gnawing question, which is, I wonder if he thinks I gave up on him. And it was a legitimate question. And the truth was I didn't give up, but man, I had no idea how to handle that scenario at all. And so I finally decided to, to get serious about defining what my non-negotiable values were, because in those moments, what are you going to hold on to? I had nothing to hold on to. Everything was a moving target and, and it was incredibly uncomfortable. And I, and I made a decision that haunted me for years, um, which was, I said, goodbye. And I should have never, I should have never done that. And here we are, you know, February, me next to his bed. And um, the conversation I had was completely different. It was filled with my non-negotiables. It was filled with hope and creativity and empathy and impact and all these things that are, that are my values now that I live by. And I didn't have to say goodbye because I was leaning into those values. And can we, can we go here? Because I think this is a really interesting distinction, which is the first time around you're saying goodbye in your mind, you're quitting this time you're pouring into him on, on your values. Can we zoom out? Because I'm sure you hope that most of the people listening or all of the people listening to this don't go through what you went through. 100%. So for those of us who hopefully don't have to go through what you went through, yeah. can you bring that to um, other places in our existence where we might have a choice to quit or yep. live our values? Can we, can we pull on that thread a little bit? Absolutely. There is a massive difference between being intentional and acting with deliberate intention. And so no matter what you're doing in your life right now, uh, I, I want you to think about a GPS in your car. You can set a destination for your GPS and say, that's where I want to end up. You're being intentional. Um, but let's say you're on that journey and you decide you're going to stop for dinner or you have to go to the bathroom and you pull off the path. What does your GPS do? It starts screaming at you, right? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Where are you going? You're off the path. Do you need us to reroute you? Do you want to change your destination? It starts questioning everything, right? When you don't have values uh, defined, you don't have anybody to question you where you say that you want to go to. Your values are like that GPS that basically say, hold on a minute. You're not going the direction you said you wanted to go and you need to get back on path or you need to come to the agreement that this is not one of your values, um, which is fine. And, and in either direction, there's clarity. And so the idea is 
setting a destination in a GPS is being intentional, but knowing every single turn you're going to take to get there, that's deliberate intention. That's acting with deliberate intention. And that's the difference. And so when it comes to something that you're facing right now, if you are not acting through those non-negotiable values, you are winging it. And, and the truth is, without exaggeration, 99% of every single person I have ever met or come in contact with is winging it. They can't answer the hard questions. They can't tell me what those five negotiables, non-negotiables are and why they chose them and give me examples from your past as to how you arrived there and how do you speak them into existence on a daily basis because they don't. So they rely on accident or luck. And the truth is a broken clock is still right twice a day. And so twice a day is enough for a lot of us to get through the day. But if you're going to allow life to dictate itself to you in that way where you're only in alignment with your purpose or values uh, by accident or luck, it's a shitty life, man. And, and there's so much more available. There's such, such a more fulfilling way to live your life that it becomes the competitive advantage in life, period, for people who decide to do this work and discover what truly matters most to them so they can use those things to live a life of fulfillment that they don't even realize is possible at this point. So interesting because a lot of this conversation has been about goals. Like I wanted to play pro ball. That was the only thing, you know, I, I was going to earn a lot of money. I was going to be in a rock band and um, get record deals. And I'm really, I, I study a lot about goals and values. And I think that there's nothing wrong with having a vision. And I actually think it's really important to set some goals and have a vision, but a goal or a vision without values is potentially meaningless. And I think a lot of people start with the goal and they start with the vision and they never take the time to really think about their values. For me, I decided to separate my values and you can coach me here if, if it would be appropriate for you to do so. So for me, I separated my professional values and my personal values. Um, and I found that to be pretty liberating. And then I also started combining words in the values. So professionally, I want to be empathetically curious. And the reason why I had that as my top value was because I'm not curious about everything. I'm not curious about how your guitar was made. I'm not curious about how the heck we're able to have this conversation over video. I'm blown away by technology, but I'm not going to be extremely curious to learn about how the computer was put together. So the word empathetically for me, I'm curious about people and like, I want to try to understand where you're coming from. And so I lead with that value professionally, but personally, my top value is actually humanity. Um, like personally, I care deeply about humanity and just, trying to live this world, leave this world a little better place. Professionally, I don't really value humanity in the same way. And personally, I don't always need to be empathetically curious. So that, and then I have four values underneath those values as well. I'm curious for you, do you ever separate professional and personal, or do you think that it's just one driving the bus and am I crazy to put words together? Uh, coach me up. There's only one you. 
I'm a blender. I'm a blender. (laughs) I make it more complicated than they usually. Unless you are what Michael Keaton in multiplicity, Uh, you. I like pizza. I like pizza. (laughs) I like pizza. (laughs) You, there's only one you, brother. So, so here's the thing: you've applied values to a role that you play at work, and that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, I understand why you did it. It's a brilliant idea. It just doesn't work. Um, not, not in the way that you want it to, because it's a role that you are assuming it's not who you are. And so you have to go with who you are. So, so the way that I would describe it and, and hopefully encourage you to, to think about it in this way, I break things into three areas. It's our what, why, and how, right? So the what are these black sheep values? The why is our purpose. And then the how is our mission right? And we have a tendency to think of mission. We try to, we, we religion, we use religion to drape over that, but a mission is just a self-imposed task, right? Don't think anything more. So, so the idea for me is your goal is to do one thing really well, and that's to align your what and your why. You have to align your values with your purpose. And, and it's why I have such a problem with, with Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why. Um, there needs to be an asterisk on that book cover that says, if your why is right. (laughs) But what people don't understand is where your why comes from. Your why comes from your what, you know, my non-negotiables, my flock of black sheep values, creativity, hope, impact, empathy, family, authenticity. Those are the things that I use to make every decision in my life on a daily basis. Right. And you my, did six because I, I remember reading the book because you go big. So, so yeah. you gave yourself six. 20 years is, as a rock star. I mean, we do everything to excess. I needed an extra and that's it, fine. It's not unusual. But it kind of speaks, it kind of speaks to you though, as well. And what you value is like, Hey, I'm going to do a little more. I'm going to yeah. 14 hour days. That 100%. is part of how you roll. Um, 100%, 100%, right? So, so creativity, hope, impact, empathy, family, authenticity. But my, my purpose, the reason that I get out of bed every day is to creatively impact others by authentically providing hope. So it sounds familiar because it's laden with these non-negotiable values. They are in my purpose. There is alignment between my what and my why. When there is alignment between those two things, your how you become incredibly adaptable. So you don't need to have something separate at work and something separate at home if you have alignment between your what and your why. When you have those two things, how you choose to honor those things will change at work, will change at home, will change when you're doing extracurricular activities, will change when you are, it doesn't matter because how you choose to fulfill it um, is a completely different conversation. That's the one sort of, changeable thing that happens all the time, but our values are, by the time we're in our early twenties, they're pretty much etched in stone outside of a catastrophic event in your life. They rarely, rarely change. And so the reason people think they do change is because they never figured out the right ones in the first place. And so as you get older, as you live more life, as you experience more things, you are sort of slowly chipping away at that at that block of marble that there's this beautiful statue underneath. And hopefully by the time you're 70, 80 years old, you've chipped enough away to know who you really are. Um, but, but if you do the work and you understand that these are the things that are truly your non-negotiable. And I think the other interesting sort of idea here is people don't understand what non-negotiable means. Non-negotiable means no. That's what it means. So, so I, I'll work with people and they'll say, cleanliness, 
is one of my black sheep values. And I immediately just go, that's bullshit. Do you see dirt in the corner over there? Yes. Yes. Okay. You're in this room with dirt in that corner. Well, yeah. Well, if it was a non-negotiable, you wouldn't step foot in this room (laughs) because you would refuse to deal with things that are not clean. That's non-negotiable. What you're telling me is it's a really strong preference that is really important to you. And I agree with you 100%, but don't confuse that with non-negotiable. Non-negotiable means no. For the same people who say leadership, leadership is one of my non-negotiable values. That is not true. I will not believe that for 99.9% of the people that I work with. Why? Because if you ever participate in something that you don't lead, it is not a non-negotiable value because if, if, if it was, you would go, no, unless I lead it, I'm not doing it. I'm not participating. So when you understand the difference between really, really important and a non-negotiable, they seem like they're really right next to each other. But in reality, they are a mile apart from each other because there's a, there's a big difference between refusing to do something on principle by saying this is a non-negotiable and, well, I really would prefer that we do this over here. Right. And so when you separate those two things, your life becomes so much simpler to live because you're only dealing with the things that are truly non-negotiables. If you put me into a situation and said, you can't be creative, the answer is no, I'm not interested. If you put me into a scenario and said, you can't provide hope to these people, the answer is no. If you tell me that I have zero, this will have zero impact on someone's life. I will not show up. I will not be on your podcast. I will not do that talk. I will not consult your business. I have zero interest in it because it's a non-negotiable. And so those are the things that uh, you have to do the work to prove that they're real instead of believing that you think they're real. And that's the challenge. So I looked at my words and the word that's on both the personal and professional list mm-hmm. is, cur- is courage. Mm-hmm. And so you've got me thinking about if I was ever in a situation where I couldn't be courageous, mm-hmm. I would not be in that situation. Yeah. Um, I think about there was a time where I was at a Starbucks and I was meeting with somebody and I could like kind of see it over my right shoulder behind me that there was a scuffle going on. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I turn and this woman goes flying down this step of st- uh, this staircase with this other man. And we actually talked about on the podcast because one of my past podcast guests was who I was meeting with that day. Wow. And he s- sat there and did not move. Mm-hmm. And they went tussling down. And then another guy came on and backed up the woman and they pinned the guy. They went down another staircase and they pinned the guy down. And now all of a sudden I could kind of tell like they were plain closed people, but th- they were officers and they were pinning this person down. So I ran down the stairs Uh and ran down the other flight of stairs Uh and said like, do y'all need me to help or anything? Everybody else stood Uh there watching and Uh some of them pulled out their phones to video. The guy I was meeting with stayed up upstairs. He never even moved from his seat. Uh And I thought about that and, and like, why is it that I would go there? Because I've never served our military. I never felt sure. like I should become a firefighter or something that I would see as those are things that we think of as courage. At least I do. Yeah. Um, and yet I do find that I'm willing to go toward the fires, mm-hmm. uh, whether that's conversations about race in our society, whether that's 
um, debates with people. Um, and so you've got me thinking now that courage is not something I would, it wasn't my one, it was like my fifth, uh, mm-hmm. professionally. And then it was my fourth personally. Mm-hmm. Now you got me thinking about like, that might be my non-negotiable driver. Um, coaching yeah. Well, I think there, one thing to think through is that values exist in a hierarchy. Right. And so this is one of the things that we do. So, so if I'm working with someone and, you know, the first thing they do is they take the assessment online and I, I'm able to look at it and see what they, not only what they have selected as things that are really important to them. I also get to look at how they chose to group these words together, um, which also reveals some, some information to me. And then I look at their final five that they've landed on and we can start to have our conversation. Um, but one of the things that happens often, right? So, so we've had over 5,000 people take this assessment in the last uh, six months. And so the average person selects at least 30 words that are incredibly important to them um, that immediately sets you up for failure. Right. Because when there are 30 things that you're telling yourself are really, really important, human nature is going to be to try to honor those things. And it's just impossible to honor 30 things every single day in your life. There will be a ball or two that gets dropped. And so the question becomes, what do you focus on? Do you focus on the 28 that you did really well? Or do you focus on the two that that slipped through the cracks? And if you're like a lot of people I know, it's really hard to let the ones that slipped through go. And so the idea becomes we group them together by likeness. And when you group them together by likeness, you start to see some of the family of values that exist in that hierarchy. And so oftentimes I'll have somebody say, okay, um, here are my five. What I know from doing this thousands of times is two or three of those initial answers you can give me 20 different reasons why you think they are. You can give me examples from your past over the course Brent, of your life. Brent, I'm just yeah. going to interrupt. I did this. So let's just use me as an example here. Let's do so, it. So I so did, your, I, I, I took your assessment and yep. it was well-being, empathy, okay. innovation, yep. integrity, and family. So I look at these and, and if we were working together, um, what I'm doing is I'm looking for, I'm looking for a couple of different things, right? One is when people get to the, what they think their initial are. Can you, do you remember how many words you selected? Oh, there's a ton. Like when you were saying you have a ton. So there's six per column. How many columns do you have? Uh, so like in the report that you yep. all send, yep, I have five columns. Okay. So there's, th- so there's 30 words. There's a ton of words. Yes. Okay. <laughs> That's good though. That's good. So what, what happens is when you get to these five, two or three of these, I, I will believe you right away that there, there are certain ones at the top of the hierarchy list that we just know instinctively because we've lived our whole lives without even knowing that this is what we're doing. So there's no question that that's the case, but two or three of, of the five, in addition to those, um, can sometimes be not true. Um, and there's a couple of reasons why. So we either, uh, 
are caring for someone else's sheep, as I like to call it. So you've been conditioned your whole life, some of us, to, to, to care for other people's sheep. So an elderly grandparent, a sibling, you grew up in a single parent household, you've had to sort, you, you did some things that you were required to start to care about other people's values um, as part I didn't, of And I didn't have any of that as part of my okay. upbringing. Great, great. So I look at this and I go, um, one of the other things that we look at is, did you drill down too far? So what we would do next is we would take these five things. I have a tracking workbook for, that's a free download that you download and you track these five things for two weeks. And uh, uh, every night before you go to bed, you go back through your day in your head and you go, did I experience these things? If yes, how many times did I experience them? And when I experienced them with whom and what was the situation? And you start to document these things. And at the end of a week, we look at, at the data. And we go, okay, well, family showed up every day, right? Multiple times a day. Um, empathy showed up multiple times a day. Okay. Uh, innovation showed up a couple times. Didn't really, wasn't, wasn't a constant thing. Uh, integrity showed up quite a bit. Well-being showed up on the days that I worked out. Well-being showed up, you know, in these other areas here too. So what we start to do is we start to look at, where these organically appear in your life on a daily basis and the ones that aren't appearing as much as you maybe think they should, we have to look at why. And, and, and the next phase of this is having you define exactly what you mean, because I don't know what you mean by well-being. Yeah. Well-being it's, it's interesting because if someone were to describe me, I think they would describe me as empathetic. I think they would describe me as innovative, uh, high integrity and a family person like those four I'm not shocked to see them. And I think Correct. my behavior um, aligns with those four. Like if someone lies to me and I see low integrity, like it is absolutely in conflict with me and I will be courageous in how I address that person. Innovative, like I, I, I love creating stuff and, and building stuff. Um, and we talked about empathy earlier and then family is, you know, I, I have processes in place to be home for dinner and I spend probably too much time with my family. My, my wife and I were actually talking about, especially during the pandemic, like our kids probably don't need us around as much as we've been around them if we're being even just truthful about it. Sure. But well-being, I don't think it's interesting. Like when I, when I hear well-being, I hear someone who exercises and eats well, um, and I would say I'm okay at both of those, but none of my friends would say Brian is in the best shape or right. is the healthiest eater. Where I would say well-being takes place is the mental side. Like I've gone to therapy, I've been coached. I obviously am in the, I got a master's in psychology. Um, like I spend a lot of time making sure that I'm, I'm well there. I value friendships, um, relationships, um, but I, I would say that one is not the one, if I was listing my values, I probably wouldn't have gone to well-being because like, I want to just feel alive. And I know that part of feeling alive is also dealing with some, some tough stuff. And yeah. I'm actually, um, I, I, I try to, and I, I like to think of myself as creating relationship with, with all of it. Um, and I'll acknowledge that you know, my well-being is something I prioritize, but I don't feel like I always value it the way that I probably could. Um, right. So, yeah. so we do a couple of things. When you define, when I force you to define what you mean by that, you expand the definition of what well-being means. It's not just 
you know, physical, it's mental, it's spiritual, it's, it's, there's a lot of factors to well-being. And as long as you know what you mean by that, then you know what to search for when you're searching for proof, right? And so if you narrowly defined well-being as working out, you know, it's just health, it's health, right? Um, but you didn't consider mental health or you didn't consider spiritual health or any of those sorts of things, um, then if you didn't go to church or you didn't, you know, uh, read any sort of religious text or you didn't pray or, you, you know, then then you don't see well-being show up in your day, right? But if you expand the definition that that's one way in which you experience well-being, then you do see well-being in your day represented frequently when you understand exactly what you mean by that, right? So that one would be a, qu a question to, uh, to definition and what you truly mean. It may be able to be sort of filtered down. Now, the one that's not on here is courageous that we talked about for a couple of different reasons. And I, I believe that um, courageous actually is one of your higher ones because you don't do things like innovate without being courageous. You don't have integrity um, if you're not courageous because sometimes integrity requires that courage to stand up, right? It's why you went to the woman who was being dragged down the, the, the staircase. Um, I would say, so I get family, obviously family is one of mine too. One of the things that we look at um, for me in my unique situation of being on an island for years with my son, because we couldn't just his immune system and cancer and the whole bit, like we couldn't really be around that many people. So when I said family, I really mean family in that, in that way, my immediate family. Um, but what I have found for for most people, when they say family, what they really mean is connection. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, connection is the higher value in the hierarchy. Family is one way in which you experience it very powerfully, no question, but it is the connection to your family. That's the value. It's not just family. Right. And so you do a podcast, you have all these other things. I could argue that it is connection. That is the higher uh, value in the hierarchy there. So my professional values before I took your assessment and read your yeah. book, empathetically yeah. curious, which I mentioned connection is two. So you nailed it. Yeah. Uh, energetic is three. Genuine is four and courageously creative is five. So I put courageous next to creative. Um, because once again, like for me, it's not just about creating, it's about creating things courageously. And I like the combination I have a question for you, and this is something I've thought a lot about. We don't value health often until it gets taken from us. Yep. You, you saw health get taken. Yep. Um, and I think of security as such a profound word when we're talking about values, because so many people make decisions based on their own security, whether it's to stay at a job or to take a new job or to build a house here or a lot of people I find they make decisions based on their psychological safety or their own security. And what I've found in my life is because I was raised in a household that was secure, that was, that was well, um, because I grew up in a neighborhood that was secure and, and well, I mean, I really had an upbringing that did not have trauma in it at all. And that's just the blessing of having, like I realize how fortunate I am. I work with people for a living and I hear how many people didn't have that in their household. And so for me, one of the things I've realized is that I don't often value security because I assume that I have it. And so 
in a sense, I don't need to value it because I feel like I just have it almost inherently, even though it's not necessarily true. Uh, and, And I've noticed that as a result, I don't always do a great job of making other people feel secure when we work together because I just assume that they feel that way. Right. Um, and, and so I've noticed that I'm just going to talk about security. Do, do you, how do you think about security specifically? And if someone has it and someone doesn't have it and how that plays a role, because if we have it, we may not value it because we already feel like we already, we already own it. Okay. So two, I got two, two answers here. First of all, let's go back for a second to your professional values. Almost every single one of these can be swallowed up by your personal values, mm-hmm. right? So I go to empathy. You have empathy. Um, you have curiosity. I would say that you can't be innovative, innovative if you're not curious, right? So it would be tucked underneath innovation. Connection is family. Um, being genuine is all about integrity, being yourself. Uh, creative, again, back to innovation. Um, energy, I could loosely wrap that into well-being based on how you described well-being, but energy is, I would argue with you all day long that that's, you're putting on a show for, for some bond or something to get a result that you would desire. Um, well, I feel energy though. Like I, 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 it's Again, the definition. What do you mean by, do you mean energetic yeah. or do you mean energy like life force? Because that's a different thing, right? Yeah, you're right. I probably am wanting to provide energy. You're a speaker. You're right. It's probably a performance element to that. Um, yeah, it's, it's impact is what it yeah, is. It's impact. That's it's right. Probably, it's probably wanting to make sure or connection. Like, yeah, I think it's hard to connect with people without energy. So I think, Agreed. I think that's fair. Agreed. Right. So that's all that. So let's talk about security now. So I I have a different view on security as well, because I've come to the conclusion that I don't control outcomes. (laughs) So security becomes something very different to me. Security is in the treatment of, of leaning into these other things so that people feel secure because I am feeding their sheep. Right. As opposed to security in the fact of, I've got money, I've got a house, there's food on the table, there's this, there's that. I don't control any of that. I'm glad that it's there. I'm glad that people accept what I do and pay me to do it. There's no question, but I don't control that. I only control what I'm putting into it. And so I'm going to focus my energy on putting into these things and feeding these sheep and through these sheep, feeding others sheep, and they will feel secure because I am doing and and sowing into the things that matter most to them, knowing that I I can't control. I I, I just can't. If you ask me how much money you're going to make next year, I have no idea. I have no idea. But Brant, aren't there certain professions, for example, that could give us more security than others? So and nothing is a fail safe, but pursuing a professional baseball career and being mm-hmm. in the minors compared mm-hmm. to working at a government job, like there is different levels of security. So one person might say, you know what? I really value making sure that I'm bringing home a salary. And I know the government, I, I typically will have security there. Mm-hmm. And the other person might say, I value ambition or drive or, or whatever the thing is fulfillment, um, Mm -hmm. to go pursue baseball. Uh, Don't you think it could, it could lead us to make decisions on the path that we're, we're on? A hundred percent. It can influence our decisions as to what we are looking to do. But 
again, I come to what does security mean to you? Because it would be different to what security means to me. So when you define security, um, if you define it in a traditional sense as to what security actually means, um, my argument would be that for, for a lot of people that I've worked with, uh, succumbing to security ends up violating one of their other values mm. because they don't have an opportunity to feed that sheep because they took something that was more secure in their mind as to, and, and in most of these cases, to be completely honest, security is about someone else's sheep, not your own. So if you are compelled because somebody else wants to feel secure, then you're caring for that other sheep. And, and you know, my thing when I work with people is I have zero problem with you feeding someone else's sheep, zero problems. I have a problem with you caring for someone else's sheep like it's your own. That's where I draw the line. So we all, um, I believe, have this innate uh, want to do good in some way, shape, or form. And, and so um, how we pursue that differs with all of us. But the idea of saving some of this food that um, we feed our own sheep with and using it to feed someone else's, I think that's amazing. I think that's amazing. Where people get in trouble is when they put the needs of someone else's sheep above their own. And so in caving to security for a family member, a partner, a, a relationship that you're in and stripping away your chance of being innovative because you, you decided to take this much safer route, right? Um, it will never last. It will eat you alive. It will be something that will be the detriment of that relationship because you have had to sacrifice a non-negotiable in lieu of trying to provide security. There's a better way. There's always a better way that you can do this without sacrificing, right? So the idea becomes for me, I had this conversation the other day about compromise. I don't like to compromise. Right, it, the 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 winning culture uh, that I grew up in does not want me to compromise because I view compromise as a loss, no matter what. I am having to acquiesce. I'm having to give something up to compromise. What I have been able to do since I've discovered these things for me, what my non-negotiables were, is rather than compromise, can I feed one of my sheep and amplify its effect to get the same result? So rather than me going, well, I'm going to give up security so that so-and-so feels better, I can go, can I feed my sheep of hope to make that person feel way more hopeful about the scenario? So it's semantics in a lot of ways, but for someone who is a type A alpha wolf, this is how I want, I don't want to compromise anything. For me to be able to go, well, I didn't compromise. I fed my sheep. I, I, I actually leaned into hope to make sure that that's what you felt because it's one of my non-negotiable values. So if I did my job and you feel hopeful and you feel less risky or, or you feel more secure because I gave you hope, then good on me for being able to feed that sheep in a really powerful way, as opposed to me giving up and saying, well, I'm not going to do this because, you know, you want to be secure. You want to feel secure. I don't want to move the family halfway across the country because of this, or I don't want to take that job because it's not guaranteed, or, you know, I don't want to uh, pursue this passion of mine because um, there's, there's no guarantee that it'll be successful. And so when you remove the results from the equation of good or bad, right? If you don't 
account for results in good or bad, then um, it frees you up to do way more uh, things with your life and take risks that are, that are more calculated. This has been really thought provoking. And I go back to that moment that you shared with your son um, a few months ago and how you were empathetic and hopeful and, and pouring your values into him. What are you doing on a regular basis to live your values? What intentionally do you do deliberately do you do to ensure that your values are actionable? And then I'd love to just wind down with you and, and learn more about how people can find you and follow you yeah. uh, and all that good stuff. But I'd love to start to wind down here with, Hey, what do you do to intentionally make sure that your values are showing up on a regular basis? I program them into my calendar. So if you were to look at my calendar, um, every appointment that is on my calendar has several words next to it. And those words are all one of my black sheep values. So in this particular one, you would look and you would see that we have this podcast together. And uh, next to that, you would see uh, uh, three basic words. You would see creativity, hope, and impact, because those are the three things that I wanted to bring to the table today, no matter what. And I wasn't going to allow that to happen by luck or accident. I'm going to speak those things into existence. I'm choosing to feed those sheep during this time with deliberate intention. Um, that's the difference. I program these to appear in my calendar on a daily basis with every interaction because it's my unique contribution. It's what I bring to the table. It's what separates me from everybody else on the planet. And so I want to have that level of impact with every person that I come in contact with. And that can't happen without me being deliberate with my intention. And so my intention is spelled out in my calendar and uh, it has become just the modus operandi of how I, how I work. Um, I'm going to approach something with very specific um, intention of which values need to show up to maximize the impact of that opportunity. And that's exactly what I do. And that's what I coach people to do on a daily basis. If you walk into a meeting without having thought about which values are going to serve you best in that moment, you are not prepared. You are not prepared. And so you've got to sort of start thinking through these things and approach them. And when you do, what you think is possible in your life and what you start to experience um, become very different. And, and you start to understand that there is so much more. Um, there is a level that you can reach in your life um, of fulfillment that has nothing to do with results and has everything to do with the impact that you create based on leaning into and feeding these, these black sheep values that are the most important thing. They are the most valuable thing that you possess in your life. A couple of years ago, I, I uh, came across something called Kintsuni, which um, is a uh, ancient Japanese philosophy and a, uh, a way of fixing broken pottery, right? And so the, the legend has it that in the, I think it was 1500s, there was a Japanese shogun whose favorite tea bowl got broken. And so he sent it out to be repaired and it came back and it had these ugly staples in it. And it just, it was awful. And he's like, I, I just want it to be prettier than this. I can't eat, you know, drink my tea out of this on a daily basis, having it look like this. And so he sent it out to some local artisans and they, they uh, decided to take a different approach. So they went out and they found the most valuable thing they could get their hands on, which was gold. They melted down the gold and they used the gold to repair the cracks. And in doing so, they did two things. Number one, 
they made the gold more valuable, uh, the bowl more valuable than before it was broken because now it's laced with gold. And number two, they really told the, the history, the story of, of the bowl. And so he loved it. And, and Kinsuni is actually translated as golden repair. And so when I talk to people, um, especially leaders, most of them want to be unbreakable. They feel like they need to be unbreakable to be a good leader. And my argument is always rather than spending your time sort of keeping things at arm's length to try to stop people from breaking you, you need to come to the understanding that if you truly want to be unbreakable, you have to have the realization that you're already broken. We all are. And instead of stopping people from breaking us, we need to focus on what's holding the brokenness together. And just like gold was the most valuable resource for those artisans, your most valuable resource are these black sheep values. They are what hold the brokenness together. And so let's start focusing on those rather than trying to not get broken. And we'd find ourselves in a far better state than we are today. The Japanese, they, they are probably the wisest culture that we have. There are so many good lessons to learn from 100%. them. Just so much wisdom in that culture. Um, Prant, this has been really thought-provoking. And I really appreciate you sharing your story, your vulnerability. Um, I know some of the stuff is still raw. And uh, it would be easy for you to just say, hey, Brian, I'm going to just keep some of this to myself and would be plenty appropriate. Um, but I think you're aware of the impact that you can make with your story. And I think the reality for all of us is bad things are going to happen. Um, if you live long enough, there's no escaping bad things from happening. Um, and so I know for me, I'm always trying to be thoughtful about what can I do to handle those bad things in a way that is courageous. Um, and we'll see if I do, I think easier said than done. That's for sure. Um, but your courage is appreciated and your vulnerability is, is remarkable. So, um, if people want to learn more about you, where can they do that? Uh, social media, website, book, podcast, all that good stuff. Uh, the easiest thing is simply brantmenswar.com, uh, B-R-A-N-T-M-E-N-S-W-A-R. On any social, it's just at Brant Menswar. Um, let me say this, brother, um, just to encourage you, whether you realized it or not, you showed up today with courage and integrity and empathy, and it's what gives people like me um, the, the security <laughs> to share and know that it's a safe space and um, that it means something. And And... Uh, the more that you understand that you can do this with deliberate intention, you can plan for this to happen. Um, the impact that you were able to have on me today and allow me to talk about something that I haven't really talked all that much about in the last few months and not be a broken down puddle of mess in front of you is because you showed up with these things. Uh, you fed these sheep right in front of my face and, and there is nothing that you can do that makes me um, more comfortable and makes me want to answer the hard questions because I believe you really care. And that is uh, a gift. So thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you and uh, looking forward to seeing you when you come to town. 
uh, for a big speaking gig sometime soon. And I can buy you a cup of coffee, lunch, or uh, grab a drink and, and we can chat more about all the fascinating things that are going on in your world and going on in, in this world. And just thanks for, for sharing you and um, thanks for being here. Thanks, brother. Appreciate you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. There is a massive difference between being intentional and acting with deliberate intention. And so no matter what you're doing in your life right now, uh, I, I want you to think about a GPS in your car. You can set a destination for your GPS and say, that's where I want to end up. You're being intentional. Um, but let's say you're on that journey and you decide you're going to stop for dinner or you have to go to the bathroom and you pull off the path. What does your GPS do? It starts screaming at you, right? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Where are you going? You're off the path. Do you need us to reroute you? Do you want to change your destination? It starts questioning everything, right? When you don't have values uh, defined. You don't have anybody to question you where you say that you want to go to 